This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, welcome back. This is Mike Smith in for Simi. The hot question of the day. We're going to talk about Andrew Wilkinson on the show today, the B.C. Liberal leader and his latest comments uh, creating controversy. Last week, it was the wacky renters comment where he said, well, when you're a renter, it's just kind of a fun, wacky time of life. Uh, Not for people who can't afford to buy a home in this market, it's not. When he said that, the first day he said it, my first thought was he's going to have to take this back. He's going to have to walk it back. And it took him a couple of days to start walking it back, and he's been kind of fumbling and bumbling and apologizing ever since for that one. I mean, that was just a cringe moment, an absolute gift to the NDP when he's talked about the wacky renters. You watch. That'll be in an NDP TV commercial in the next election for sure. Now, here we go again with him. Now he says he's going after the NDP's interest-free student loans. Uh, criticizing this. this is a popular measure by the government. Certainly, if you're a student, you're the parent of a student with interest with uh, student loans. The NDP saying we're not going to charge interest on the loans. Uh, Wilkinson criticizing that now, saying that the interest uh, interest free student loans uh, might uh, convince some students to get a little carried away with debt. They'd go in over their heads in debt. Now, maybe that's a legit comment to make, but. It's another one where it opens it up, opens them up for criticism. Here's the hot question of the day. Were Wilkinson's comments about student loans fair? Would you say yes? They could go deeper into debt? Or would you say no? Students will be fine with interest-free loans? Vote on this today, will you please? On Twitter. Go to at CKNW on Twitter. You'll find the hot question there. Give me a follow while you are there, please, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. I've retweeted the hot question of the day. We'll give you the results during the show. Also, follow me on the buzz line about this one today. What do you think about these comments from Wilkinson? Last week, it was the wacky renters. This week, he's uh, criticizing interest-free student loans. Phone me on the buzz line and tell me what you think about that. 604-331-BUZZ is the number to call. 604-331-2899. Let's talk about Gerald Butts now, the former principal secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on the seat at the Federal Justice Committee today as he gives his side of the story in the SNC-Lavalin scandal. My guest is Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, thanks for coming in. Great to be here. Okay, this story just keeps going and going and going. I think the Liberals, we were talking off air here. We're going to listen to a few clips of uh, Gerald Butts here, but you were, your thought on it was that Butts was pretty calm, cool, and collected on there, and the government wants to turn the heat down mm-hmm. in this thing, right? Yeah, so he, he made the first thing he said, well, I'm not here to take shots at Jody Wilson-Raybould. I'm not going to attack yeah. her. No personal attacks. But he basically refuted, point by point, a number of her assertions. Uh, I thought the most interesting part was when he said uh, the, the now infamous Chateau Laurier dinner that he had with her. He's, he read out texts suggesting it was she who pushed for the dinner, uh, kept pushing to meet on this, and it was she who brought up S. NC Lavalin, not him. And he says, if that's, that's, how can that be pressure if it's her idea in, uh, in the first place? So that was one interesting point from Buzz. This is, the, this is the one, just to jump in there, this is the one where she said last week mm-hmm. that at that dinner meeting they had at the Chateau Laurier, 
that he told her when they're talking about mm. SNC-Lavalin that we have to come up with a solution yeah. to the problem, and which he, she interpreted as pressure. Now, he was asked about that, and he said, well, he doesn't remember using that word. He says he would never use the word solution, well, and he also said that was her idea to call the meeting. And it, in fact, he says that SNC, and I think Wilson-Raybould agrees with this point, that SNC didn't come up until the very end of the dinner, in fact, as the dinner was sort of ending. But again, we're into this. Nobody's got any tape recordings here nobody's got any you know different texts perhaps but i think this is now you know who do you want to believe and it's it's i think it's going to start to break along partisan uh, terms uh, liberals will believe butts conservatives and democrats will believe wilson raybo and and there you have it barring any other resignations like jane philpot which came out of the blue uh, this story goes in two one of two directions that either peter's out uh, in terms of not having any the proverbial legs uh, more resignations would certainly give it legs or uh, the ball is thrown into the federal liberal caucus's lap. If there are, if there are, if there is evidence that caucus members, by a significant number, start to break with the prime minister on this issue, then I think he's in a full-fledged crisis. Because we, you and I, Mike, have seen these stories in BC politics over the years. It really depends on on a leader able to hold on to the caucus much more than the cabinet. And if and Trudeau, if he can hang on to his caucus, this thing is effectively over. If he can't hang on to the caucus. Uh, then he's in a lot of trouble. There's a couple of Liberal MP backbenchers mm -hmm. that have been outspoken on this. There's a guy in uh, New Brunswick named Wayne Long yep. who's been calling for an inquiry or an investigation of some kind. There's an Ontario MP named uh, Selena Cesar Chavez who has uh, also been critical mm -hmm. uh, as well. But these are backbenchers. Two prominent voices there, but they're backbenchers, right? I mean, the, the cabinet, Trudeau has got his vow of fealty from the rest of the cabinet. I don't think there's going to be any more cabinet no, resignations. I don't, I don't think there's any more cabinet resignations. In fact, they're on record now telling media outlets right. uh, where we support the prime minister. The Globe and Mail today has a number of uh, MPs saying that they support. Now, they've got uh, like 50 MPs haven't responded to their to their request for a comment. So I don't think, again, it'll be interesting whether that constitutes a, a, an actual backlash against the prime minister. But until we see evidence of mounting resignations or people from the backbench saying, I don't have faith in the prime minister anymore, uh, I think this thing starts to peter out. Okay. There's interesting post-scrum reactions. That seemed to be the indication from the politicians from all parties. Let's have a listen to Gerald Butts testifying here this morning. Here he is talking about uh, talking to Jody Wilson-Raybould about getting a, a second opinion on this whole thing. We had a view which was informed by Department of Justice advice that it would be appropriate for her to seek independent advice from an eminent Canadian jurist or panel of jurists. We believe that this was appropriate, first, because the law empowering the Attorney General to use remediation agreements is new. Indeed, this was the first time that entering into a remediation agreement under the new regime was even possible. Second, we felt that outside advice was appropriate because of the extraordinary circumstances of a conviction. The fact that the company involved employs so many people across the country heightened the public importance of the matter. That was the entirety of our advice to the Attorney General, which we made clear she was free to accept or not. We also made clear that if the Attorney General accepted our proposal and took external advice, she was equally free to reject or accept that advice. It was not about second-guessing the decision. It was about ensuring that the Attorney General was making her decision with the absolute best evidence possible. When you boil it all down, 
all we ever asked the Attorney General to do was to consider a second opinion. Okay. He says, we're just asking her to consider it. That's not pressure in his mind. She says it was pressure. So, again, it comes down to this thing that he said today. Well, maybe she experienced it differently or she interpreted it differently. Well, he said a couple of times that two people can experience the same event uh, and have different interpretations. Well, is this like Trudeau when he allegedly groped that reporter? Yeah, Re- remember that when he said, "Well, oh, she obviously experienced it mm-hmm. differently from me," and you know, to me, I was getting like deja vu on this whole. Oh, she experienced it differently. Well, again, it's uh, where does it go from here? Um, it's we're back to a he said, she said. Who do you believe? There are going to be people who believe Wilson Raybo, and there are going to be people who say, "No, I don't believe believe you at all. I believe butts." And I, I'm not sure where it goes from here in terms of being sus- sustaining. Uh, as an issue, as a controversy. Either you see more evidence of implosions in the federal ranks, or you see them come together and say, no more. Here's why I think I was more impressed with her testimony than his, okay? Mm -hmm. And a couple of things jumped out at me. One was, he was asked this morning, well, what about, was there any politics discussed around this? What about, she says that people were bringing up the Quebec election and that Trudeau was a Quebec MP, and that this could hurt him politically if they didn't help this company. He had a line where he said, well, you know, politics is a gray area, (laughs) as he put it. To me, I just thought, what kind of a cop-out is that? You're either putting pressure on this woman to give this company a pass for political reasons, or you're not. I mean, where, where is the gray area? Well, it was interesting. He was also asked, where's the evidence that these 9,000 jobs are going to suddenly disappear uh, because of this? Where where is there tangible proof that these jobs would disappear? And he couldn't point to that. Well, if they were convicted, they would be banned from bidding on government work, which is their bread and butter, isn't it? That's for federal government work. But yeah. keep in mind, SNC-Lavalin is going to probably build the Patella Bridge here on the BC government. So the BC government has given SNC-Lavalin over the last... 30 years, billions of dollars of contracts. There's still a lot of work in Canada for SNC-Lavalin just because the feds, they can't bid on federal contracts. They bid Hmm. and build so many municipal and provincial projects across the country that I I just don't see how 9,000 jobs would disappear. Also, this notion that they go to London. Well, every economic analysis I've seen, London's the last place you want to go right now if you're a company because of Brexit. It's about to turn that economy upside down. It's not a place you're going to see investment dollars flow through. So I think he was weak on those points on uh, on the SNC-Lavalin aspect. But again, you know, lacking proof from either one of these two, it's basically up to an individual to decide who you want to believe. I will grant you that he was calm, cool, and collected on there. And maybe that was deliberate, like you said, bring the temperature Mm -hmm. down. He didn't want to be seen as a aggressively attacking her but here's another thing that jumped out at me and i thought sounded weak and that was you know this consistent line that it was all up to her there was no pressure and it was her call okay fine but trudeau fired her effectively as the attorney general he moved her out of there Mm -hmm. if it's her call why did you move her out of there now he was asked about that today and again he comes back to this scott bryson mm-hmm. talking point oh it's because scott bryson resigned from cabinet and that somehow triggered the, this domino effect that he was forced to move her out as attorney general i'm just not buying that yeah no it's interesting his his comments on how this cabinet shuffle was put together is quite revealing that you know, you regional that, interest. Though, that Scott, because Scott Bryson resigned, he had to remove her as the attorney general. I mean, 
I don't think uh, the argument necessarily is is supported that she had to move from the Attorney General. She wanted to remain Minister of Justice. That was her main main thing that she wanted. I think you, now we're seeing post you know all this people talking about splitting up those two portfolios, Justice and AG, and maybe that's when they should have realized maybe we should split these two portfolios up. But uh, you can either read her resignation one of two ways: either that she was moved because of SNC Lavalin and her not playing ball with the government. Uh, and that she quit because she was upset with how she was treated in terms of being moved from the Minister of Justice portfolio. It's interesting that she turned down, according to Butts, she turned down the Indigenous Services uh, portfolio yeah. because she has spent her life fighting the Indian Act, and she would have been basically in a position of administering the Indian Act, the very act she finds so offensive, understandably so, uh, for so many years. It uh, was a sort of fascinating uh, background okay. of why this all happened. Well, I'm going to play another clip here for you. In this clip, you're going to hear Gerald Butts describe a phone conversation between Justin Trudeau and Jody Wilson-Raybould. Now, this is where they get into the whole cabinet shuffle. Remember, she was removed as the Attorney General and Minister of Justice and shuffled over to a different portfolio. This is an interesting kind of behind-the-scenes look at a cabinet shuffle here. I think it's critical to the whole story here. So let's have a listen. Just so you know, when he refers to a Mojag that means Minister of Justice and Attorney General. Here it is. He said he didn't want to move Minister Philpot, but that she was the best qualified person to do Treasury Board because she had been Vice Chair. He then said that would leave a large hole at Indigenous Services. And he didn't want people to think he was relenting at all on the, the agenda. He said he knows how much she, quote, loves being Mojag, but that she was one of our top people and moving her to Indigenous services would, quote, show Canadians how seriously we take this. There was a long pause on the phone. Minister Wilson-Raybould said that she was, quote, a little bit shocked, unquote, because Mojag was, quote, her dream job. She said, IS is not my dream job. I'm not going to lie about that. The Prime Minister said, I know it is not your dream job, but it is core to this government's mission. Minister Wilson-Raybould said, quote, I feel I'm being shifted out of justice for other reasons. The Prime Minister replied that he was doing the shuffle because he had to, and because he thinks it's the best thing for the government and the country. Then Minister Wilson-Raybould did something I didn't expect. The former Attorney General turned down a cabinet portfolio. She said she couldn't do it for the reason that she had spent her life opposed to the Indian Act and couldn't be in charge of programs administered under its authority. I should have known that, and had we had more time to think of the cabinet shuffle, I probably would have realized it. The obvious question is why did the Prime Minister not leave the Minister in her old job if she turned down a new one? My advice was this. If you allow a Minister to veto a cabinet shuffle by refusing to move, you soon won't be able to manage cabinet. Cabinet invitations are not the product of shared decision-making. Over the next few days, Ms. Wilson-Raybould and I talked and corresponded many times. I knew from those exchanges that trust had broken down between our office and the minister. I tried to counter her misapprehensions with repeated and, believe me, honest efforts. In the end, I was unable to do so. And here we are today. 
All right, that's Gerald Butts uh, testifying this morning. I'm speaking to Keith Baldry about the the testimony today. So there he was describing, I thought, an interesting kind of behind the scenes of a cabinet shuffle where he he describes how Jody Wilson-Raybould did not did not want to be the Indigenous uh, Services Minister. He, uh, he put her into Veterans Affairs well, instead. It sounds like uh, it was punishment that she refused a, a portfolio. Uh, and he said, well, his, his advice was, well, if you refuse a portfolio, we can't keep you in your job. You know, you're going to have to move. You can't dictate the terms of, of where you go. Uh, in retrospect, I think he probably thinks we should have left her in, in justice and in, in attorney general. But they, it appears that they moved her to veteran affairs. That wasn't their first choice. The first choice was indigenous services. Right. She says no. And they're saying, well, we're not going to let you dictate where you go. Uh, you're, we're going to move you. And I think uh, that I think that was bad advice. Well, what is it? What is the point of this story that he's telling? Is this to make her look like a troublemaker? Or he says this is the first time he's ever heard of a cabinet minister turning down a I, cabinet job? I think in a very not so subtle way they tried she he tried to portray this as a bit of sour grapes on on her part and yeah. it's interesting i think uh, it'd be not, very interesting to have wilson rabel reappear in front of this committee and challenge mr butts's assertions here unfortunately the liberal majority on that committee voted not to recall her the conservatives and the ndp members on that committee are saying no she's got to come back and answer these questions the liberals are taking a very calculated gamble here without a committee platform uh, for for her that uh, it's going to be hard for her to counter butts's uh, butts's testimony here but uh, again we'll see going forward again i go back to a lot depends on the federal liberal caucus if the liberal mps make a stand here that's different than the pmo than the pmo and the prime minister in Re- remember it, when it comes to this cabinet move that they moved her out as the minister of attorney general and minister of justice which i think is critical to this whole scenario what we didn't hear in that clip was this whole scott bryson mm-hmm. um, excuse or argument that when it was scott bryson stepped down from cabinet it triggered this shuffle and that he effectively had no choice. He had to move her out of AG. And it had nothing to do with this SNC-Lavalin scandal. You see, I'm still not buying that. Like well, To me, that doesn't make... It's just unconvincing. It is unconvincing. Uh, he does paint a picture of they had to appease regional um, sensibilities. Yeah. He needed someone to know, but that does not necessarily mean. I don't think they've made the case, well, that means we had to move Wilson-Raybould. I think right. you, you can make the case you had to move a few pieces around the chessboard. But why Wilson Rabo, particularly at a time when there are sensitivities over SNC Lavalin? So he's made the case that you have to move some people around to appease regional uh, sensibilities and uh, your power base, but has not made the case that suddenly the focus had to be on Wilson Rabo and, and not many other people. Okay, we just got a minute left here. Let's just talk where it goes from here. Now, you've been mentioning that. We don't expect any more cabinet resignations because every single one of them has expressed loyalty to Trudeau now. Maybe there's a little bit of uh, rumbling on the back bench, not a whole lot. There is the police are taking a look at this. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have received a complaint. They said they're reviewing it. Do you expect a police investigation? I'd be surprised. Wilson Rabel herself, in, when she testified in front of the committee, said she did not regard any of this as criminal uh, behavior. She, basically, it was an ethical lapses on the part of uh, Trudeau and his staff. So, and given Butts's, you know, contradiction of Wilson Rabel, I'm presumably the if the police were reviewing her testimony, they may be reviewing his as well. So, I'd be surprised if a police investigation. I go back; it's in the hands of the caucus, and we'll see Mario Dion is oh, the, the ethics commissioner. The ethics commissioner is yep. investigating, but he's not exactly yeah. the hanging judge. No, he gave uh, the Trudeau. A miss on the Aga Khan thing, so yeah. it's, uh, I think I'd be surprised. So he goes away, you think? 
Well, the uh, the conservatives and NDP, uh, this is like candy for them. They want to keep this going as long as they can, and and it's been going for a month. I mean, this is this okay. has done some damage. The polls are showing that uh, the conservatives are benefiting. Next election, seven months from now, a lot can happen. Thanks for coming in. All right, I appreciate it. Keith Baldry, Global BC Bureau Chief. The new mayor of Surrey ran on a platform to get rid of the RCMP. He said Surrey had outgrown the Mounties. It was time for a municipal police force. He felt that would have greater local accountability. They could do a better job in taking on especially violent crime in the city of Surrey. This was a marquee promise from the mayor when he was running for the job. He won with a big majority on city council, but now one of his own councillors getting a little cold feet, it appears, over this idea of getting rid of the Mounties and going to a municipal police force. Some calls for more public consultation on the whole idea, but the mayor now is doubling down on the whole thing. Janet Brown, Global News senior reporter, has done a great job in this story. Hi, Janet. Good morning, Mike. Yeah, it's been a wild week out here in Surrey. Uh, So much discussion in the last few days since Monday morning about whether there should be public consultation on a municipal police force in Surrey. A lot of people saying, yes, there should. And of course, a lot of people saying there should not be, including our new mayor, Doug McCallum. Uh, Mr. Mayor saying uh, that council feels it has, quote, the complete mandate of the majority of voters in Surrey to form a civic police force, do away with the RCMP without any public consultation. He says that public consultation on policing happened during the election campaign, he says, for months, with people telling him they don't want the RCMP anymore and they want a civic police force instead. Here is more of what the mayor has to say. We've done extensive public consulting during the campaign. We did three months of it, four months of it. Again, I did 10 10 speeches a day um, exactly on this one thing. That's our main um, campaign point that we campaigned on through those whole four months. And and we did the ultimate um, public consulting saying that if you agree with us and, and elect us, then we will bring in your own Surrey's own police force on day one. And so the public accepted that as a public consulting and they elected us. In fact, they elected all of us except for one um, um, based on that um, campaign as far as, and we were very clear in the public in the campaign that um, if we got elected, then we would um, be forming our own um, police force um, on day one, on the very first day that we got elected, if if the public supported us. And the public supported us in overwhelming numbers. We defeated every one of the current councillors who wanted to keep the RCMP. So um, there's been a very extensive public consulting already. So um, our commitment to the public was that if they elected us, um, we would start with our own police force right away, and that's what we've done. Okay, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum there in conversation with our own Janet Brown, sounding very determined to go forward with this plan for a municipal police force and get rid of the RCMP. He makes a good point, Janet, that he was very clear about this policy during the election, and they won big. He won a big majority on council. 
Absolutely. And you know, this firestorm about this public consultation issue, Mike, it all started on Monday morning uh, with City Councillor Doug Elford saying he, quote, did not foresee any public consultation. Within a couple of hours, uh, Councillor Linda Annis, the opposition councillor, lone opposition councillor on Surrey Council, fired off a news release calling for a referendum on municipal policing. And then that was followed up by the Surrey Board of Trade CEO, Anita Huberman, calling for an immediate meeting with the Solicitor General and also calling on Mike Farnworth not to approve the changeover from the RCMP. And then yesterday, another shoe dropped, uh, Councillor Jack Hundial weighing in, saying without public consultation, he would not be in favour of the move despite voting for it last fall. And and then, it didn't end there, uh, that resulted in some back and forth between Hundile and the mayor, uh, with Mr. McCallum saying, quote, the voters entrusted us to deliver on our promises, and that is a trust that Councillor Jack Hundile is now breaking. So obviously, a rift is developing on Surrey City Council over this. And, um, there's more news to come soon, too, on this, Mike. The the city right now is writing a report to send to the Solicitor General, Mr. Farnworth. It is to be delivered to his office around around the end of March. And I asked Mr. McCallum, uh, will voters get a chance to see that report before it goes to Mr. Farnworth, uh, who must approve the change to a municipal force? And Mr. McCallum said the public will not see that report before it goes to the province. He says it will be up to the Solicitor General whether he wants to release it or not to the public. And, of course, the other big question in all of this, Mike, is how much more is a civic police force going to cost taxpayers? The mayor saying those costs are still not finalized yet. The numbers are still being worked on. So that's where it stands right now. A lot of unanswered questions still. And the big question is, too, uh, I reached out to Mr. Farnworth on Monday asking his staff, uh, whether he had any comments on public consultation and how he felt about all of this. And I received a three-line statement back saying, public consultation is always good when there are big decisions to make. So that's really key. And I think, I don't know, I'm only guessing, but I'm thinking perhaps once that report does land on the desk of Mr. Farnworth, maybe he might come back to the city and say, hey, you know what, you have not done proper consultation on this. You need to do that first before I take a, a real solid look at this. Yeah, this is really good work by you on this on this story, Janet. I mean, I think Farnworth, the Solicitor General, has been cool to this whole idea of a municipal police force from from the very start. He certainly says he's not opposed to it, but he has repeated many times that it's up to the city of Surrey to demonstrate and to bring forward a very detailed plan about how this whole thing is going to work. Then you've got this councillor, Jack Hundile. This guy is interesting to me because he ran with McCallum as part of his party, voted in favor of a municipal police force, campaigned in favor of getting rid of the RCMP. Now he's sort of telling a different story. He's a former RCMP officer himself, right? I'm wondering if he's, he's getting, actually- a little, getting a little pressure from his old pals on the force. He's actually a former staff sergeant with Surrey RCMP. And you're right, he was in favor of making that move. But he also feels that the missing piece of the puzzle in all of this is that there is really no 
committee, uh, no group that meets in public that holds the local RCMP accountable. Right now we have the Public Safety Committee, which is a part of Surrey Council, but it meets in camera behind closed doors. And Mr. Hundile feels perhaps if there was a public committee that met in public, that that might satisfy people to try and keep the RCMP more accountable in the city of Surrey. That's a big piece of the puzzle here as well. But you're right. It is very interesting that he has now broken away and said this. And the question, too, is will this cause a further rift among councillors on city yeah. council? Uh, Mr. McCallum was very unhappy with uh, comments by Mr. Hundile yesterday. That's for okay. sure. Okay, just lastly, Janet, what's your read on this going forward here? Because as you heard McCallum say in the clip you just played, he's got a big majority on that council. They won every seat on council except for one. His party did. So you've got one guy going a little rogue on him here, Jack Hundile, one of his own guys now questioning this move. But does McCallum, from, from your perspective, appear to have solid support from the rest of city council uh, to go forward with this plan for a municipal police force and not to go through any more hearings or, uh, on it? Great question. And another councillor, uh, Brenda Locke, has also suggested yep. about a week ago that there also should be public consultation. Others are rumored to be saying the same thing. So uh, it's only not, it's not only Mr. Hundile suggesting this. Now we have Brenda Locke. There may be a few others who come out and say the same thing. I did talk to another councillor yesterday, Alison Patton. She is with the mayor saying they did their public consultation during the election campaign. Lori Guerrera saying the same thing. So, there, you know, there's more to come, obviously, more discussion yeah. on this for sure. And waiting to perhaps hear from other councillors in the days and weeks going forward. And, um, yeah, who knows what's going to happen as a result of all this. But as I said to Mike, I have a feeling that the Solicitor General is going to come back once he receives this report and say to Surrey Council, you know what, you have to do more consultation mm. with the public. Uh, he may not be satisfied uh, that this is the direction to go in just yet. Okay, fascinating stuff, Janet. Thank you for coming on. Great job on this. My pleasure. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate it. Janet Brown, Global News Senior Reporter. Let's talk about interest-free student loans in British Columbia. Do you remember that the NDP promised this during the election a couple of years ago? Took them a while to deliver, but in the recent budget tabled by Finance Minister Carol James, there it was, the government says they will remove interest charges on current student loans and future student loans will also be interest-free. Now, can you imagine if you're a young person with a student loan? I mean, this is money in your pocket. This is absolute gold. If you're a parent, maybe you're helping your kid out with uh, university costs. And I'm, I'm, I'll tell you, I'm thinking ahead here personally. I got two boys in high school. I'm starting to think, how am I going to afford these university Interest-free loans? Yeah, that sounds pretty good to a lot of people. But check this out. B.C. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Now, this guy, he's been walking an interesting line here lately. Now, this is the same guy who last week got in a jam when he said that renting was kind of just fun and wacky. He had to walk that one back and apologize. Took him a couple of days to do it. You know, if anyone in this market knows how expensive it is to buy a home a lot of people are forced to rent not very nice to hear him talk about oh it's just kind of a fun and wacky part of life 
Yeah, he apologized on that one. Now here he is weighing in on interest-free student loans, saying maybe that's not such a good idea. He was speaking to Red FM. Have a listen. We have to be a little bit concerned that any loan that carries no interest encourages people to go into a lot of debt. Mm. And students may get carried away with debt. When I was the minister responsible for the universities and colleges, I came across students who'd run up $80,000 in debt, and they had no way to get out of it, and they're only 23 years old. So that's the concern we always have with interest-free loans, is why wouldn't you just go and borrow as much as you possibly can? Mm -hmm. And then why would you ever pay it back? Think about that. Mm -hmm. If you're given $80,000, there's no interest, why would you ever pay it back? Okay, interesting take again by the Liberal leader here. I think this, for a lot of people, this has been a popular announcement by the government, but he's pouring cold water on it there. Let's talk to Noah Burson now, chair of the Alliance of BC Students. Noah, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me this morning. What do you think when you hear the the Liberal leader uh, criticizing the interest-free student loans like that? Um, uh, Definitely a little bit tough to hear. Uh, I mean, you spoke to it. It's a golden opportunity for students. Um, and I think some of the points made around the fact that um, this encourages students to not pay their loans back uh, are a little bit false, right? We've got things like credit ratings. You've got things like wanting to actually take a loan out afterwards that if you're not paying back your student loans, you're not going to be able to. So it's definitely a little tough to hear for us. Do you think he's got a point, though, that if, if the government offers basically free money or interest, at least interest-free loans anyway, that maybe some students might take on more debt than they can handle? I don't think that's the case. I think students uh, I think students going into post-secondary are very aware that they're investing in their education, that this is something that's going to pay back. Um, and, I, and I'm really hoping this is actually going to encourage more folks who are on the fence about whether they, they can actually enter post-secondary education are going to be able to, to afford it, get that, that cost all the way across that cost. So, um, no, I, I don't think that's going to be an issue. I have a lot of faith in, in our youth in BC and the fact that they know what they're investing in and that's going to pay back. How much, what is the average uh, balance on an outstanding student loan these days? How much do people typically owe? So it's, it's a little bit difficult to tell that exactly. Um, anecdotally, uh, we've heard up to, you know, Mr. Wilkinson talking about $80,000 in debt. I've got folks in my office who have around $40,000 in debt. Um, so it's tough to nail down the exact. Um, I know the BC government has pinned it that, that this move is going to save students $2,300 over 10 years. Um, on a median student loan, so that might give you a, a good idea of what it's uh, like. Okay, speaking to Noah Burson, chair of the Alliance of BC Students, uh, when you apply for a student loan right now, do you not have to demonstrate that the money is going to be paid, used to pay tuition or other expenses, or, or are the guidelines a little looser than that? I'm not exactly sure what the guidelines are when taking out a student loan, um, but I do know that there are several things within student loans that, that are exceptional to student loans. So, for instance, you can't actually declare bankruptcy on a student loan um, until seven years after you've gone into repayment. And this is unlike any other loan that you can take out. Um, so there are definitely some different things with student loans, but uh, specifically to that, I, I'm sorry, I can't speak to it. But I, I'm just the reason I ask is, does he have a point when he says that maybe students might take on more money than they can afford to pay back? Do you think that's legit think- concern? I don't believe that's a legitimate concern just because I have a lot of faith in our youth in BC. I think that, yeah. you know, you're looking at taking on debt. This isn't going to be something you're entering into easily. Um, when Mr. Wilkinson talks about that student he ran into with $80,000 in debt, it kind of surprises me that his first uh, instinct was, 
oh my goodness, the students wasted their money, not, oh my goodness, how can we help the student? How can we educate them better on, on financial uh, awareness and financial literacy? What's been the reaction that you've heard from people since the government made this announcement about interest-free student loans? What are people saying to you about it? Um, personally, I've had so many folks come up to me um, and thank us for the work we've done um, and the other student associations across BC. Um, just talking to folks within my office who are 10 years out of post-secondary and who are working here, um, this is going to save them uh, a significant amount per month. It's going to save them between 35 and $50 a month. And that's enough money to you know, go for an extra dinner a month, put some more money back into their, to their student loans, be able to actually be able to put them down, pay them down on a house, stuff like that. So this has actually had a very tangible, real impact on, on people who have student loans across BC. Have you uh, heard from Andrew Wilkinson about this at all, the Liberal leader? Uh, I've personally not heard from Andrew Wilkinson around it at all. Would you like to talk to him about it? I'd be more than happy to sit down with Mr. Wilkinson and, and talk to him about the issues that are facing youth in BC right now. I think opposition has a very key role in making sure that the government functions properly. And I think when opposition is well informed about the issues, then they're better able to hold government accountable. Do you think students need more debt counseling? Like maybe they just, students maybe need a little pep talk about taking on debt, the risks of too much debt, uh, how to manage your money. I mean, do you think students could use some a little bit of training on, on managing debt and loans? I mean, absolutely. Uh, students can always use more education around that kind of thing. But I think yeah. students are very aware of their own financial situation. If they're making a decision to take on debt, that's not something they're going to enter into lightly. They're not going to say, oh, let's grab another $30,000. I think this is a, something that students have the ability and the foresight to take seriously. Um, and I truly believe they do. Okay, speaking of Noah Burson, BC Alliance's students, I mean, this follows the, his uh, Andrew Wilkinson's comments last week about renters and saying that renting was kind of a, a fun and wacky part of life, uh, something he's been kind of apologizing for ever since. I mean, what's your read on this guy? You had that comment last week and then this comment now about student loans. Do you think he's out of touch or what's your take on it? I mean, again, the, the role of the opposition in the government is to hold the government accountable and make sure the policies that are coming forward the ones that are best for British Columbians. And so it's kind of hard to see that that's actually coming true when we've got a, an opposition leader who's making these statements that are so um, kind of out of touch with the reality of the youth in BC. Um, I'd be more than happy to sit down with Mr. Wilkinson and discuss some of the issues that are really pressing to youth right now. I mean, he brought up renting. Renting is not a wacky period in time. This is this is a reality of folks, not just um, within our post-secondary system, but within folks across our province. Um, so, yes. Noah, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Have a good morning. Uh, all right. Noah Burson, he's the chair of the Alliance of BC Students. Let's talk more about the uh, goings-on in Ottawa today where the SNC-Lavalin scandal squarely in the spotlight once again at the Federal Justice Committee. Gerald Butts, the former principal secretary to the prime minister, was on the witness stand earlier in the day. Michael Wernick, the clerk of the Privy Council, also answering questions today. This one just keeps going and going and going. Let's check in with Anthony Fury now. He's a syndicated columnist for Post Media and the Sun, Sun newspaper chain. Very pleased to welcome him. Anthony, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike. Always great to chat with you. Appreciate it on a busy day. Let's start with Gerald Butts. What did you think of his testimony? Well, it all hinges on credibility, and he refutes a lot of Jody Wilson-Raybould, uh, a lot of her testimony, but he does it in some very interesting ways, basically either saying, I don't have the notes to that effect, that's not how I remember it, or in a line that got a lot of people up in arms saying, oh, I appreciate that two people can experience the same event 
differently. So there were some denials and, and some contradictions, not just of her statement, but Michael Wernick's, which she's making sort of, you know, still right now. Uh, but uh, a number of different, shall we say, tactics to try and say, yeah, these conversations were happening, but no, there was nothing wrong, nothing illegal. Okay, the whole line about some people experience things differently, I was getting a little deja vu on that, because, of course, if people might remember the, the groping allegations against Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and a young female reporter in British Columbia had alleged that he had, he had groped her or touched her inappropriately, and, and he, his line on that was, well, people remember things, his exact exp- uh, quote was, people experience things differently. Is a very similar line coming from Butts here today. And, you know, it's the, it's the new way, it's the cool way, it's the in-crowd way of calling someone a liar. Because it wouldn't look very good uh, for the prime minister to call a woman a liar who, who is saying that, you know, I was grabbed by you. And it certainly wouldn't make Gerald Butts look very good to call someone as distinguished as Jody Wilson-Raybould a liar. So you say, oh, yeah. we you know, we experience these things d- differently. But the problem is, Mike, when you're before a justice committee and in an issue that the RCMP is uh, is is potentially going to be probing and potentially issuing criminal charges on, uh, you, you can't have that. There's either one thing that's right or one thing that's wrong. And, you know, that's why these answers are not satisfactory to people. Okay. He talked a lot as well about this uh, meeting that took place between himself and Jody Wilson-Raybould in, in Ottawa. And this is the one where Wilson-Raybould had suggest, said last week that she felt that he was, he was pressuring her and that... Uh, he, she quoted him as saying that we got to find a solution to this SNC-Lavalin situation. She interpreted that as pressure. He said today that he doesn't recall using this word solution. What, what's the, is this like a, a he said, she said at the end of the day? Well, well and, and more pointedly, he said, uh, apparently alleged that he said there is no solution that does not involve interference. And that yeah, statement, right. Mike, if true, that is the closest thing uh, that we had in Jody Wilson-Raybould's testimony that a, a judge or or a jury would say, yes, that fits obstruction of justice. That is, in fact, a criminal code offense. So it's no surprise that he went out swinging against that one, because that is the most incriminating sentence. And I don't use that word lightly. And, and again, he just said, no, that's, you know, that's not the case. I mean, we're talking about the issue. We were talking around the issue. And, and he was very defiant. You're right on the phrase solution. He said, no, I, I would never say that. I'm not the type of guy who says that. The challenge with all of this, Mike, is, is it just relies on credibility and who do you trust and, and who do you think is the honest one and who is taking uh, the high road here? Because they're, they're all basically saying, no, no, trust me, you know, I'm a good guy. That's kind of what, what is being said by Gerald Butts, by Michael Warnick himself, talking about, you know, how genuine they are and their personal friendships and relationships with everyone. And oops, we just had this misunderstanding. Right. Speaking to Anthony Fury, syndicated columnist for Post Media. Anthony, one of the other things that Gerald Butts was asked about today, of course, was, well, he kept repeating that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould had total control of this file. Whether this company received this uh, this prosecution agreement was completely up to her. But, of course, Trudeau removed her from the portfolio. He moved her out as attorney general, which I think is, is critical to... To the, to the whole sequence of events here. Now, he was asked about that. Why was she moved out of the uh, the portfolio? And once again, they come back to this Scott Bryson thing, that when Scott Bryson stepped down from cabinet, it triggered this kind of domino effect that effectively forced Trudeau to move her. What, what's the reaction of people to, to this? Like, I'm not buying that. What do you think? 
there was no reason to buy it because, look, they were elected with a staggering majority. What that means is they had over 180 MPs to choose from for these 30 or so cabinet posts and then 30 or so parliamentary secretary posts. There's a lot of people out there. And quite frankly, to Trudeau's credit, a lot of brilliant people did choose to run under the liberal banner. A lot of them are not being used. They are underperforming. Jody Wilson-Raybould was tapped. There are so many people, Mike, that you can tap to bring into this role or a role like it. If you wanted Jody Wilson-Raybould to stay in that job, she could have stayed in that job. It is as simple as that. So they had to decide, we want her out, and now is the pretext. So you almost flip the sentence around. It's not that because Scott Bryson left, we had to shuffle her out, but ah, because Scott Bryson left, now we have the opportunity to Mm. get her out of here because we want her out of here. Okay. We also had Michael Wernick on the witness stand today. He's the clerk of the Privy Council, one of the people identified by Jody Wilson-Raybould last week when she was dropping names and uh, naming basically a who's who of power players in Ottawa that she says pressured her on this file. Uh, Michael Wernick very prominently mentioned he was back testifying today. Anthony, let's have a little listen to uh, what he had to say here about whether or not he ever threatened Jody Wilson-Raybould. Have a listen. Former minister maintains that her decision, a decision to take no action, was final in December, in September, sorry. But she had the ability as new public interest considerations emerge, to reassess the context and re-examine her reasoning. And that is the most she was ever asked to do. So I repeat my contention, the minister experienced lawful advocacy to consider doing something lawful in the public interest. I made no threats, veiled or otherwise, that the minister's decision would lead to consequences for her, and my position could be captured at all times by the well-known phrase non-ingérence, non-indifférence. It is my contention the minister was doing her job and I was doing mine. Okay, as Michael Wernick, uh, she called it pressure, Anthony. He calls it lawful advocacy. What is the public supposed to take away from this? When Murray Rankin was testifying, not testifying, asking questions during uh, that question portion of the committee hearing, he told Murray, he told uh, Michael Wernick that he had received a number of phone calls, emails from his constituents who were retired public servants saying that they were ashamed of Michael Wernick and the things he had said at his previous testimony. Wernick doubled down and said that he has no shame about it. He's proud about it. He wants to reiterate the, the fear mongering he did. Uh, he said that he's been bullied on social media and showed up like like some sort of, you know, grade five person to the principal's office with the evidence. He said, please take these pages of, of mean tweets uh, that I received. I mean, I, I don't think this guy understands how life and reality works. And as I saw uh, one uh, female reporter said, well, he'd hate to see the stuff I get uh, every day. Very bizarre stuff. And, and, and Jermaine, to your particular point there, I mean, he's, he's really quibbling on a lot of these details here because by, by simply saying, oh, she said her decision was final to me in September, but then we went back and said, well, there's new evidence we want you to take into consideration, and we're going to keep bringing it up to you, and that's lawful evidence. We can split hairs here, but that certainly seems like a whole lot of influence and a whole lot of pressure. So the, the thing that they're all doing here, uh, Mike, is, is they're not actually denying that there was repeated aggressive pressure. I think they're really just trying to save their skins uh, to get the RCMP not interested in this, to think that it became the point where it was criminal pressure. Anthony, last question for you. Where does this go from here? I mean, we've seen two dramatic resignations from Justin Trudeau's cabinet. 
The remaining ministers in his cabinet have all publicly declared their support for him. There's a little bit of grumbling on the back bench, but I don't know. There doesn't seem to be any uh, evidence or signs of a, of a major insurrection against him. The government obviously hoping that this thing cools down a bit going forward here from today. Is this thing going to settle down a bit for Trudeau, or are there still, uh, still pitfalls ahead for him here? Well, we're learning just how powerful the prime minister's office is, because it's up to him whether or not there's a public inquiry. The reason there was one in the sponsorship scandal against the liberals was because Paul Martin called it effectively against Jean Chrétien. Now it would up to be up to Trudeau to call against Trudeau. I, I do think it calms down a little bit because we lose our mechanisms to get to the bottom and get to the answers of this unless there is an RCMP probe. Because what everyone is saying, what Wernick is saying and Butts is saying is, oh, people experience things differently and that's what Trudeau's saying. And, and there's no way, there's no ruling body that's going to determine right. who is actually telling the truth here. And that's what we need to know. Who said what to whom? And the, the issue that at stake here, Mike, is whether or not the justice system is impartial or not and a key defining principle that separates canada from you know the shady countries rest and see lavalin has actually been charged uh for getting up to chicanery and that is what matters that's what's important here we're just not going to get answers for that i think unless there's an rcmp probe or a public inquiry anthony thanks for taking the time and a busy day appreciate it all the best mike thanks okay thank you that's anthony fury syndicated columnist at post media doug mccallum promised to the people in the election last year he said he wanted to get rid of the RCMP and bring in a municipal police force instead. He won big. I mean, his slate won every single seat in that council except for one. He's got a big mandate. He's got a big majority at Surrey City Hall. He continues to insist he's going forward here on this plan to get rid of the Mounties and bring in a municipal police force. But now you see some of the councillors there at Surrey City Hall starting to get cold feet on this one. Yeah, Vancouver City, or Surrey City Councillor Jack Hundell, who was elected under McCallum's banner, saying that now he wants public hearings on this. Don't forget, he's a former RCMP officer. Our own Janet Brown has been doing a lot of the great digging on this story. She spoke to Mayor Doug McCallum today. Here's what McCallum had to say. We've done extensive public consulting during the campaign. We did three months of it, four months of it. Again, I did 10, 10 speeches a day um, exactly on this one thing. That's our main um, campaign point that we campaigned on through those whole four months. And and we did the ultimate um public consulting saying that if you agree with us and, and elect us, then we will bring in your own Surrey's own police force on day one. And so the public accepted that as a public consulting and they elected us. In fact, they elected all of us except for one um, um, based on that um, campaign as far as, and we were very clear in the public in the campaign that um if we got elected, then we would um, be forming our own um, police force um, on day one, on the very first day that we got elected, if if the public supported us. And the public supported us in overwhelming numbers. We defeated every one of the current councillors who wanted to keep the RCMP. So um, there's been a very extensive public consulting already. So um, our commitment to the public was that if they elected us, um, we would start with our own police force right away. And that's what we've done.
All right, Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum saying the time for talking is over. It's time to get going to get a municipal police force into the city of Surrey. Get rid of the RCMP. You got the mayor doubling down there on his election promise. Let's check in now with Cash Heed, the former Minister of Public Safety, former Solicitor General uh, for British Columbia. He's the former chief of the West Van Police Department. Cash, thanks for coming on again. My pleasure, Mike. Where do you stand on this issue of uh, Van- uh, Surrey policing? Do you think the mayor is on the right track? Well, let me tell you, whether he's on the right track or the wrong track, he's been very steadfast in his police reforms for Surrey. When yep. you look at what he said prior to the election, what he said post, and what he did post-election, it's quite clear. He is moving in this direction. You know, it's, it's different from what other municipalities did when they looked at this particular issue in their community, such as the individual that phoned your line that talked about Richmond. Well, Richmond yep. did not have a council that was elected basically on this particular crime and safety issue in, in reforming policing within that jurisdiction. So we're talking about a little bit of a different perspective here. And Mayor McKellen's right, uh, we're beyond that consultation process. Yes, there's things that you can do to really engage your community in Syria a little more, and I'd like to see that done. But I think the uh, the train has left the station, it's well on its way, and Mayor McKellen is going through all the roadblocks to ensure that he can increase uh, at least the community safety within the municipality that he is the mayor of. Do you think, though, the people of Surrey deserve a little bit more information about how exactly he plans to pull this off? And I'm thinking specifically on the cost, because if you go back to the election campaign, Doug McCallum said, oh, we can pull this off for just 10% more in our police budget. The police budget in the city of Surrey right now is around $150 million. So he's basically saying, I can get rid of the RCMP and bring in a municipal police force for another $15 million bucks a year, a 10% increase. Are you buying that? Because when I, when I take a look at this and start crunching the numbers, it looks like a heck of a lot more than $15 million bucks to me. Mike, there will be transition costs. And I looked at this when I was Assistant General because we were well on our way, as you know, in uh, looking at a different way of having a provincial police service here in British Columbia. And at that time, Michael, with the infrastructure we already had in place for a provincial police service, it was going to cost us just below $200 million, And those transition costs would have been retrieved uh, throughout uh, the years going forward. So when we talk about this, I believe there's a lot of fear-mongering on what the cost would be. It will be uh, beyond $15 million, I can tell you that. But what that is and how we can generate those cost savings for the people in Surrey that are paying for this uh, going forward have yet to be determined. So those are the issues, Mike, in my opinion, that we need to start the discussion on so the people in Surrey can feel comfortable so they'll understand the plan a bit more. I believe uh, uh, we're well beyond going to some type of referendum. I don't think uh, anyone wants that referendum type uh, style for municipal politics in place. Uh, Clearly, uh, they're on its way. You've got to look at the people he has involved in this policy cycle. He's got Dr. Waterhouse uh, from uh, Surrey that's involved. He's got some of my former colleagues from Vancouver Police Department involved. He's got Dr. Kirk Griffiths from Simon Fraser University involved. So you've got knowledgeable individuals that are putting together this contemporary policy for Surrey. You're going to get the opposition. Matter of fact, Mike, 
when I was talking at a forum to discuss this, the, the first three speakers were defeated members uh, in the last election that they really weren't talking about what's good for Surrey. They were talking in uh, the, the, the belief that they have the wrong uh, council in place to do this. You're a former chief of a municipal police force there in West Van. Do you think a municipal force in Surrey would be better for the city, better for the people of Surrey than the RCMP? Well, I'm not saying better. It all depends on on what you do. You just can't change the color of the uniform of that police agency and expect it to be different. But we have laws, or I should say regulations and procedures that are a little bit different here in British Columbia under the BC Police Act, where we bring a lot of that accountability back to the province of British Columbia, where we bring a lot of input from the local government, the uh, the people that live within that constituency, into their policing. So that efficiency, that accountability, that responsibility comes back to the local environment, which is so paramount when we're delivering a community policing style. Okay, I personally think that transitioning to a municipal police force in Surrey is, is actually not a bad idea, and I think there's some rationale for it. But I also think that you need to be straight with people about how much it's going to cost and how complex and and complicated a task it's going to be. The mayor here has talked about transitioning pretty quickly in just a couple of years to a municipal police force. Do you think that's possible, given the the complex nature of a of a police force in a big city like this, to just switch it all around two years? I was very skeptical when this started, but given the fact that this has moved so rapidly through the process and they're about to present a, a, a uh, report to the provincial government who will have the final say in this, uh, I'm uh, very uh, enthusiastic that it will actually do uh, take place within that period of time. Oh, okay. But Michael, we're still going to have the issue of people that don't believe in that policy cycle that are going to come out opposed to it. I think yeah. Mayor McCallum, if I was asked for advice, I would say, let's get out and do some public engagement on this so they actually understand how you're going forward. We, you're going forward, yes, I agree, but how you're going forward. And I think that's the missing piece of this puzzle to make it as comprehensive as we can so government will actually understand it and the citizens in Surrey and people that work in Surrey will understand it. Okay, Cash, speaking of some of the people opposed to this idea, it's been very interesting to me to watch Councillor Jack Hundile, a Surrey City Councillor who was elected with McCallum, He campaigned in favor of a municipal police force. He voted in favor of a municipal police force at the very first council meeting after he was sworn in. Now, this is the guy who's saying that maybe he's not so enthusiastic about this idea now and he wants more public consultation. Have a listen to this. Our own Janet Brown has been speaking to him, and here's why he explains that uh, maybe a uh, a little second look is necessary. Well, I think, you know, we don't need consultation on the what, but more so of the how and the when. Those are really the... Uh, the key pieces, I think, that we need to think about um, as we move forward on this. You know, it's unfortunate the mayor has decided to make it personal. You know, and I ran on a platform, uh, first of accountability and integrity, uh, when I ran as an independent uh, prior to joining the mayor and other members of the team on this coalition. Uh, but this is a serious and important decision uh, for the residents of Surrey. They deserve to understand the facts and the cost in making this, you know, once-in-a-generation change. Thanks for coming on. Take care, Mike. That's Cash Heed, the former Solicitor General of BC. If you... Let's keep talking now about the big story of the day. That's the continuing testimony in Ottawa on the SNC-Lavalin affair. Two major Ottawa power players on the witness stand today 
Gerald Butts, the former principal secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and Michael Wernick, the clerk of the Privy Council. He's the top civil servant in the government. Now, remember, both of these guys were named last week by Jody Wilson-Raybould, the former attorney general. She said they were among the 11 senior officials in the government who were pressuring her to give that uh, special deal to SNC-Lavalin so they could avoid criminal prosecution and conviction on charges there. Both of them on the witness stand today, pushing back against that narrative, denying that they pressured her, insisting that she always had the call and the power on what to do on this file. Have a little listen to this. This is Jerry Butts from earlier today. We had a view which was informed by Department of Justice advice that it would be appropriate for her to seek independent advice from an eminent Canadian jurist or panel of jurists. We believe that this was appropriate, first, because the law empowering the Attorney General to use remediation agreements is new. Indeed, this was the first time that entering into a remediation agreement under the new regime was even possible. Second, we felt that outside advice was appropriate because of the extraordinary circumstances of a conviction. The fact that the company involved employs so many people across the country heightened the public importance of the matter. That was the entirety of our advice to the Attorney General, which we made clear she was free to accept or not. We also made clear that if the Attorney General accepted our proposal and took external advice, she was equally free to reject, reject or accept that advice. It was not about second-guessing the decision. It was about ensuring that the Attorney General was making her decision with the absolute best evidence possible. When you boil it all down, all we ever asked the Attorney General to do was to consider a second opinion. Right, Gerald Butts, the former Principal Secretary to the Prime Minister. Now, here's another interesting development on this today. The Liberals used their majority on that Justice Committee today to vote down a motion to recall Jody Wilson-Raybould to the witness stand to respond to this new information today. Now, let me give you an update on that. Just in the last few minutes, we got a statement here from Jody Wilson-Raybould. She says, quote, I would, of course, make myself available to the committee if requested to give additional testimony, to answer any further questions, and to provide further clarity that may be required. As I indicated last week, my statement to the committee was not com a complete account, but only a detailed summary. She's ready to talk again. She's ready to go back on the witness stand again. And yet you've got these liberal MPs today saying they don't want to hear from her, voting that down. That's the latest on this. Let's check in now with Laura Babcock now. She's a communication strategist and a political commentator. She's president of Power Group Communications in Toronto. Very pleased to welcome her. Hi, Laura. Hi, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for coming on. What do you think about the, the events of today? Your thoughts? Well, I think that Gerald Butts did what he was expected to do. He put out there an alternative narrative. He muddied the waters a little bit. He suggested that he wasn't there to, you know, in any way cast aspersions on the Attorney General, but he effectively 
discounted her story. So if you listen to all of it, he said multiple times that she had a different recollection or a different interpretation, and maybe she was looking at things through a reframe of trust having been broken, so things looked a certain way to her. The problem, of course, with that is that with all of the different people from his office that were talking to her and all of the different interactions, one would have to assume that she misinterpreted all of it, that yeah. it, you know all of their, their sort of full-court press on her to get external opinions on her own judgment, that that was just something that she misunderstood every time. When she's the only yeah. lawyer, they said them, he said themsel- himself, he was not a lawyer. Uh, and so when you have the top lawyer saying, what's happening here, I don't like this pressure, this has got to stop, and they continued to do it, uh, you have to kind of put that within context. I think what he was not able to do, though, was in any way get Trudeau out of this situation because he could not answer the real thing that Jody brought up in her testimony last week, which which is that the Prime Minister said, you know, I'm an MP in Papineau. That's yeah. the implication that this decision on SNC-Lavalin had a political motivation behind it. So while he was able to sort of give a different understanding of all of their interactions, and put the blame on her for not communicating effectively or proactively enough, he couldn't address what was underlying her concerns in the beginning, which was that this had a political motivation. And when he tried to say that he really had no outcome he was seeking, that they were just simply trying to give her sort of legal assistance, if you will, by suggesting an outside counsel, give her some opinions, uh, that didn't square for me listening when he was being challenged by rate and when he started talking in great detail about what it was like growing up on the East Coast and the possibility of losing a company and the devastation to a community. So either, either he really did care about those jobs or he didn't care about those jobs and the other question i would just pose from his testimony that i don't think really squared was that on the one hand they're saying they were less fair and it was all up to her to communicate what she needed but on the other hand uh, when she had made a decision or when she was considering a decision they wouldn't leave her alone they needed to have influence so are they micromanagers or are they laissez-faire leaders it was a little hard to take everything that he said and square it with some of his other points yeah, I mean, they, they wouldn't leave her alone. They continued the lobbying, or as Michael Wernick called it today, the lawful advocacy. That's that's the words that he used. She calls it pressure. They, he calls it lawful advocacy. But it didn't really seem to stop. It went on for months, according according to her. And then when she wouldn't budge, she was removed as the Attorney General. Now, they got into testimony on that one today as well, Laura, and you know, they again they bring up this whole Scott Bryson uh, explanation that his resignation from cabinet earlier somehow started this domino effect that forced Trudeau to move her. I mean, I, are the public supposed to buy that when he's got they got such a, a massive a pool of talented people in that caucus he could have put in that cabinet? No, I think they overplayed their hand on that one. I don't think that no. that passes the sniff test. The fact of the matter is. They have a lot of people they could pull. If it was so incredibly important um, that they have her and, you know, they tried to move her to Indigenous Affairs, which we heard about, she wouldn't do it because she'd always oppose the Indian Act. And, you know, somehow they hadn't figured that out. And then they sort of said, well, she's not allowed to pick and choose what she does. I mean, that whole story around if Scott Bryson hadn't quit, uh, none of this would have happened. Well, if you really wanted her to stay in her role... Uh, you, as Justice Minister and Attorney General, she, you could have kept her there. There was sure. nothing in that Scott Bryson long played out story about how they were worried about losing votes. Uh, none of that 
convinced anyone listening to it that their only option was to effectively demote her, especially given the fact that we heard that, you know, from Wernick last time that that the Prime Minister was in a mood and he's going to make it happen one way or another, which is what she'd considered to be a veiled threat. I actually thought that Wernick did them a lot more damage than we saw from Bryson because he seemed to be angry. He seemed to almost you know, be in a bit of a fit of peak. He didn't like that he had some rough social media since his testimony. And I mean, really, when you think about it, there's a power differential here. What we have here is the most powerful and elected official in Butts. We've got the most powerful bureaucrat in Ornick. And both of them are saying that every single meeting that they had, every communication that they had with this intelligent lawyer, this woman, she misinterpreted all of it. That she, she somehow took it the wrong way. And then, oops, she was demoted, but that wasn't their fault either. So I don't think that they can be that powerful and play this kind of passive observer with unintended consequence that keeps happening to them, you know, they're victims of circumstance. I don't think that Canadians, when they look at the whole of it, are going to buy that. And the fact that the Liberal-dominated committee don't want to have Raybone back, they voted that down, uh, I think it just says that they're scared because she wasn't allowed to talk about things around the cabinet shuffle that clearly... Terry Butts was able to talk about. So now we've heard more of his side than we've been able to hear of her side. And I don't think Canadians will sit well with that. Speaking to Laura Babcock from Power Group Communications in in Toronto, just just lastly, Laura, on that issue of whether Jody Wilson-Raybould should be recalled to testify again in front of this committee, I think that would be a, a wise and prudent move given the new information that we heard today. We've just had a statement from Jody Wilson-Raybould here in the last, probably in the last 30 minutes, she's willing to come back, she's willing to give more testimony, she's willing to give more explanation, and yet these Liberal MPs don't want to hear from her now. They voted that down. How does that look to the public? Well, it looks bad, and you have to also remember the factoring here is Philpott. This is, a you know, yeah. another minister. So if you're saying that, if we listen and believe the new narrative that they're trying to float from the PMO, that... Uh, no, no, you know, this is just a misinterpretation by Raybould. Well, what about Philpott? Is she also mm. someone who got it wrong when she heard all the details of this? Are, are both women now not to be believed? Or as Sheila Copps tried to come out and say yesterday, they need to, the boils that need to be lanced? Uh, I think that these women are becoming more and more powerful as this drags on. And the idea that they don't get to be heard from, that they are somehow being okay. shut down, I don't think that's going to fly with Canadians, and I don't think that they're incapable of going to the media or finding another route to have their truth told on this. This is an international story now. It goes to Canada's credibility around our adherence to our rule of law. It goes to the feminist brand of our prime minister. And the world is watching, and these two women are coming across as being completely credible, standing on their integrity, and the prime minister's office so far has not done what they need to do, which is to put Trudeau out in front of Canadians to explain all of this. Mm. Laura, thanks for coming on with your thoughts today. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Laura Babcock, she's with Power Group Communications in Toronto.